of 2020. And the Church of Jesus Christ is celebrating what we call Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem the last week of his life on planet Earth. So as we get ready to get into this, I just want to say a couple of things to you. Number one, remind you and remind me, remind all of us that we are worshiping, we're worshiping together. You've seen Peter, he's at home, and we praise the Lord that he is uh, doing better. That few of us are here in the building, and you're in your homes, and I know there are people in different places around the nation that are watching us. And there are so many churches that are doing the exact same thing we're doing right now. In a moment, we're going to pray about that. But above all, we're worshiping together. We are the body of Christ, and we are celebrating the most significant week in human history beginning today. We're going to talk about that in a few moments. I do want to remind you as we get ready to get into this that we're going to be streaming live just like this every Sunday through April. Then we will revisit it at the end of April and see where we are next Sunday being Easter we're going to celebrate together. We want to be together, but we are together. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent, and we're going to be worshiping together. And I want to tell you now, so you can make a note, you can go over to your refrigerator right now, have somebody write. Next Sunday, as we celebrate Easter together, at the end, we're going to take communion together. I'm going to have it right here for me, and you can have it there at your house. It doesn't have to be Welch's grape juice, even though that's what I'll be using. It can be anything. It can be a cracker and, and orange juice. It can be water and a potato chip. It's not, there's nothing holy about Welch's grape juice and little crackers. That's just how we do it. If you get something, we're going to represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And together, as the body of Christ, we're going to celebrate that next Sunday, Easter Sunday, at the end of our time together. So again, thank you for the encouragement. I've got so many, and I know Steve Nance has as well, so much encouragement from many people. As we've been doing this, it's not easy. None of us want to worship this way, but right now this is where we are. We thank God we can do, we have this capacity now. We have the ability to do this. Uh, not so long ago we couldn't, but we can now, and we thank the Lord for that, you know, we can spend this time together. So, you can take your Bibles and your devices, and you can turn to Matthew chapter 21, and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you as we think about Palm Sunday, the word that comes to mind for believers is triumph. Yet, in the middle of that is tragedy. It's what we're going to talk about today, that there's triumph in tragedy. Even as we think about in a, in a world that is literally in the grips of of this pandemic of the coronavirus leading to COVID-19 and so many deaths and so many people that were sick and are infected. But God, you're in the middle of it with us. And as we think about that, that we would be drawn to the God who is there, to the God who is real throughout our world, that perhaps it's a moment for us to step back as believers, as non-believers, as seekers, as those who would like to know truth, to just stop and say, who is God, and where is he, and I need him, we need him as a nation, as the church, as the world, and individuals in that world. So, as we worship together today, Lord, we, as we have with Peter leading us, and as we get into your word, we pray you'd bless the time, that you would be honored, and that we as the body of Christ would use this difficult time of tragedy 
to share the triumph we have in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, Matthew 21. We mentioned a moment ago, we're going to be talking about what we call Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, that last week of his life. The church has traditionally called that Passion Week, the week when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, leading up to a week later, rising from the dead. The most significant event, not only in human history, but in time itself. God created the human race and gave us time, past, present, and future, by which we live. Because God is outside time. He just is. But this, the eternal moment where he had the plan of redemption for the human race, after our fall, original fall with Adam and Eve, bringing sin and death into the human race, and that is the tragedy by which we have been infected forever. Right now, our world is struggling with coronavirus, but our world has always struggled with sin nature. And God had a plan, and that plan included him, God himself, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, the human, being God the Son, was to come as Jesus and redeem as he died for mankind, redeem us from our sin problem as we place our faith in him. So on Palm Sunday, and theologians argue about did it happen on Sunday, did it happen on Monday, we'll talk about some of that as we walk through this. But the important thing to understand is it was God's eternal plan. And you see throughout the Gospels, you'll see Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Particularly the Gospel of John, as you read through it, several times he says, my hour has not yet come. And then you get to this week, and in John 13, that last night in the Last Supper, he says, Jesus, the Bible says, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come. And that's this week, the crucifixion, the resurrection, death, burial, resurrection. That's the summation of the gospel and that begins on Palm Sunday, Palm Monday, whatever you want to call it. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem in triumph, but also in tragedy, and the tragedy being that the human race the Jews in particular didn't recognize him as their Messiah. John 1 says he came into his own and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, he gave the authority, the right, the privilege to be children of God. That includes you and me. Through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we enter into a relationship where God is our daddy. We've been talking about it in our sermon series. He is our Father. So Jesus enters on Palm Sunday, triumphal entry as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the King of Kings, as the Prince of Peace, as the Passover Lamb, initiating that Passion Week. And the tragedy of that triumph is he came bringing peace, peace to individual human hearts that would change them forever, for all eternity. When the Jews wanted their Messiah to come as a military conquering hero to overthrow the Romans and set up the kingdom of the Jews on earth, that's what they thought the kingdom of God was. Jesus had had for three years in his earthly ministry said to them over and over again, quote, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from above. My kingdom, I am sent by the Father. My kingdom is not physical, it's 
spiritual. Over and over and over again, he had said that to them so they would understand it's spiritual, not physical. And you read the great Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, where Jesus is reiterating the principles of the kingdom. Remember, Matthew's writing to Jews. And so Jesus is reiterating the principles of the kingdom to Jews. He keeps saying to them, you've heard it said, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that, thou shalt not do this. And I'm saying if you've even thought about those things, you're guilty. So they would understand it's not just the physical acts of sin. That's not what separates you from God. It's the fact your nature is that of a sinner. And I've come to set you free from that. So as he comes in on Palm Sunday, the context of it is he's coming in bringing peace. We talk about it at Christmas, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And literally what that says in the original language is he came to bring peace to men on earth who had a will that was bent toward good, or they wanted God's will. So the context and the tragedy of this triumph as he comes in for the most significant week in human history, in the history of time, is that the Jews missed it. The Romans rejected it outright. Just another crazy, what, what is going on with this Jesus? The Jews, who had heard him say he was Messiah, some of whom believed, but as a whole rejected him because he was not, and this is such an important principle because it's where we are today as a human race. Jesus, it was okay for them to Jesus, for Jesus to be the Messiah if he was the Messiah they wanted. If he was the God who did what they wanted him to do. They wanted to set the parameters. They wanted to have the conditions. Jesus, you could be the Messiah if you do A, B, C, D. Well, what Jesus kept saying and in try, trying to teach them was, it's simply do the Father's will. And the Father's will is for me to come, to serve, to die, to set men free, not to overthrow the Romans. And so what they wanted, and, and applicably for us today as a human race, we're cool with there being a God as long as that God does what I want him to do. And I'm not even talking about people who are agnostic, even people who are atheists, who don't believe that there's a God, and say, well, if you can prove to me there's God, that's cool, I'm agnostic, whatever you want to call yourself, or whatever your garden variety religion might be. But even people in church, even people who claim to, to believe the God of the scriptures and that Jesus is the, is the savior of the world, and God, so many cases, they, that's based on the parameters in which I will accept that. And when God starts putting conditions on me like stop doing this and you can't do that and, and I expect you to trust me and follow me and love me and do what I want you to do as my child and the, whoa, whoa, whoa. I appreciate you dying on the cross for me, Jesus, and I appreciate you rising from the dead, so I appreciate you giving me heaven when I die, but right now, won't you just leave me alone? And let me do what I want to do. And if I need you, I'll let you know. I got no problem with going to church and I like Peter and I like Randy and, 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 and I'm cool. Fun people at Christ Church. But don't put any strings on me like you expect me to, to, to give money and you, you expect me to, to, to reject this. It's about me, even though we may not say that. That's exactly where the Jews were. They were excited about having a Messiah as long as the Messiah did what they wanted him to do. 
So literally what's going on here as we get ready to get into Matthew 21, here's, what, here's your assignment for the week, your homework. I know you're excited. You're going to get homework. I want you to go read the story of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem in all four Gospels. We're going to read Matthew's account today, but I want you to read it in all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What you will see when you, when you read them all and put them all together is that it's a lot more than you think it is. This wasn't just Jesus starts, he decides to get on a donkey and ride into Jerusalem and suddenly there are crowds and everybody's going crazy. Here's what's going on. Remember, all the accounts. This is not a welcome by the Jews at Jerusalem as the Messiah comes in. That's the tragedy. What it is, and here's the triumph, it's a carefully planned moment by Jesus of Nazareth to go get the donkey and the, the, the colt, the foal, go get them, ride in on them, to demonstrate that he was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. We will look at that in a moment. The Old Testament prophet, 500 years prior to this, had said, and every Jew, every scholar knew that Zechariah 9.9 was about the Messiah. What Jesus is saying is, I am Zechariah 9.9's prophecy. It is fulfilled today in your hearing, as you've talked about Isaiah and other places. This was his final public demonstration that I am Messiah. And by extension, I am God. Publicly, he would do some more stuff privately and then obviously crucified publicly. But this is his last planned public, almost like his evangelistic crusade. This is the last night. He says, here I am. I'm coming to you as your Messiah, as prophesied by Zechariah. Will you accept me? And by and large, obviously, they did not. This is, so what's going on with the triumphal entry is that it's Jesus' carefully planned demonstration to prove that I am the Messiah of Zechariah 9.9. I am the Messiah of Daniel chapter 9. You go back and you're, we're not going to read Daniel today, but if you go back and read Daniel 9, you can add this to your homework or give you something to do. Go back to Daniel 9, read verses 25 through 27, and as it lays out these 69 weeks, and then you can go to Nehemiah chapter 2, and you begin to see how it's put together. Literally, the 483 years from the time of that uh, the decree going out, from them to go back from Babylon to Jerusalem, and to begin to rebuild the temple and, and Jerusalem, 483 years go by to exactly to the date Jesus rides into Jerusalem in triumph. So here again, what Jesus is doing, as God, I'm going to ride in, as Zechariah prophesied, as God, I'm going to write in on the 10th day of the month of Nisan, exactly as Daniel prophesied, and I'm going to be crucified on the 14th day of the month of Nisan, exactly as Passover was explained. So you can go all the way back to Exodus. When God brought him out of Egypt, he said, I'll give you this celebration for the deliverance from Egypt, from bondage in Egypt, the Passover, the last plague, the death angel passed over. Here's how you celebrate that, perpetually going forward, Every year. On the 10th day of the month, you take a lamb and you set it aside. You watch it. 10th day of the month of Nisan. You take the lamb, you set it aside, and you watch it. It has to be pure, unblemished, a male. For four days, you watch it. You set it aside on the 10th, and on the 14th, you kill it at twilight. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the 10th, 
And on the 14th at twilight, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he was crucified. He, here's what he's saying. I am the promised Messiah who would ride in of Zechariah. I am coming in on the day Daniel said. I am the Passover lamb that you've been celebrating since the exodus from Egypt. If you read the, the life of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, it's the reason we know it's three years, he celebrates three Passovers with him that's recorded for us. And when he gets to this one, you get to the Last Supper, the Passion Week, we're in Passion Week now, the beginning of it, leading up to next Sunday when he rises from the dead. That Thursday night and that Passover, that Last Supper, he says, I have, quote, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you. He'd already eaten two with them. He said, but now this one, I fervently desired to eat this one. Why? Because this one was the ultimate fulfillment of everything God had ever planned or prophesied. Jesus was saying, I am Passover. What we celebrate next Sunday, it's not Easter. Yes, we call it that. But what we celebrate is Passover, that God came to set us free from death, set us free from bondage, and give us the promised land, salvation, both now and forever. Passover, we celebrate. So it begins on Palm Sunday, begins with a triumphal entry. Jesus, public, coming into Jerusalem, saying, I'm here. It was not a great celebration, even though we think of it that way. Yes, they show him respect, they lay their clothes out, they wave the palm branches, because they're, again, for the Messiah. But if you read the Gospels closely, again, you read all four accounts. As Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem, in Luke's account, it says this. When he, Jesus, drew near and he saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that even today you knew the things that make for peace. That's the key. Two things in that passage from Luke. I'll say it again. He's weeping and he says, would that even today you would know the things, you knew the things that make for peace. The today he's talking about is Passover. The peace is what he's bringing as opposed to what they wanted. Jesus is saying, oh, and he's, he's weeping over Jerusalem as he sits on the Mount of Olives and he looks at down. He's weeping because he knows they don't get it. He says, oh, that you would understand what Passover is really about. Oh, that you would understand the peace that the Passover lamb brings to you. Would that you would know that I am the Passover and I bring you peace in your hearts. You could be at peace, as Paul would write later in Romans, with God. You don't have to be his enemy. You could be at peace with him through the Passover lamb. He's weeping over Jerusalem. He loved his fellow Jews. As we're going to see next week, he celebrates because there are Gentiles that want to see him. The gospel was for all. So he weeps over him and says, I want you to understand. He's coming in triumph because he brings peace. The triumph is, it's the oxymoron that sets Christianity apart. The triumph is he's coming to be tortured to death on a cross, die as a common thief, but then rise from the dead to conquer sin and death forever. That's the triumph. 
Not the way we would choose, not the way the Jews would choose, not the way society looks at triumph. He didn't ride in on a white horse as a conquering military hero. He rode in on a donkey symbolizing humility and peace and respect and honor. They gave him as the crowd, but they wanted a king like Saul, a military hero. They wanted their expectations. They didn't want God's plan. So as Jesus rides in to Jerusalem on this triumphal entry, this week before his resurrection, his death, his burial and resurrection that are going to occur in agony and Gethsemane and all that is going to happen over this week, it's Passover. They're getting ready to celebrate. If you go back and you study history and how many lambs were sacrificed per household at this time of year, more than likely there were about two and a half million Jews in and around Jerusalem for Passover. Two and a half million. So there's no wonder that there was a crowd available. So Jesus comes to die. His plan is God's will. He said it over and over. I came to do the will of my father. I came to do the will of my father. I came to do the will of the one who sent me. Quote, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Quote, I came to finish the work of the father. All right, turn to Matthew 21 and let's look at it quickly. Matthew 21. First thing I want you to notice, I've mentioned already, but I want you to see it as we look at it together. The most important thing you need to understand about the triumph entry beyond what is about to happen is the moment Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Matthew 21 is about prophecy being fulfilled. 21 verse 1. When they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples. And he said to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Jesus had this taken care of. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Zechariah, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, that's simply a reference of Jerusalem, Jews, behold, your king is coming to you, Jews, lowly or humble, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and they did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, they laid their clothes on them, and they set Jesus on them. Laying the clothes on them was a sign of respect for a master or a rabbi. They clearly loved Jesus. Many were following him. They thought he was a Messiah, but most were following him because they they had seen him do miracles. They thought he, he was a great rabbi and a teacher. They had respect for him, thought he was a great prophet, but not Messiah. So the idea of the donkey, when you rode on the donkey, the idea was you're bringing peace as opposed to riding on the horse when you were at war, conquering hero. So he comes in in humility, riding on the donkey, lowly, coming in humble, no great pomp and circumstance, even though there's a huge crowd. Now I want you to flip back to Zechariah. Just back, go back to the Old Testament, two books. Just go back to, to Malachi and go back to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. This is the prophecy that, that Jesus is fulfilling. We've been talking about. 9 9. And notice how it begins. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Exclamation point. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! 
exclamation point. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just or righteous, having salvation, lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. Notice, peace to the nations, not just the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And notice what he's speaking to them, not war, peace. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this one that's coming, this Messiah that's coming, is bringing peace to Jews and to all nations, all the Gentiles throughout the world. He's bringing peace. Again, what they expected was peace on earth militarily. What Jesus was bringing was peace on earth in individual hearts, whether Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, Jew, Gentile, covers everybody. So Zechariah's prophecy, as we said earlier, about 500 years prior to Jesus, recognized by every Jewish scholar, this is talking about the Messiah. Now look at verse 9 again in Zechariah 9.9, the very beginning. Rejoice greatly. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, O daughter of Zion. Hebrew parallelism, repeated twice, daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem. To you Jews, particularly Jews in and around Jerusalem, where the temple was, be excited, rejoice greatly. Messiah is here. Even today, it's happening this week especially, Seder meals coming in and around Passover. One of the things that happens in the Seder meal, they send a child out in the street to see if this is the year. If this is the year, they still miss Jesus. The Messiah that he's come. And notice why they're rejoicing in verse 9 again. Quote, your king is coming. He's just or righteous, bringing justice for everyone. He will do what's right for all. He is just. He brings salvation. He can't get it anywhere else. He brings it for the Jews. He brings it for the nations. And notice, he's just and having salvation I will, a lowly, humble, and riding on a donkey. Go back to the middle of verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. That phrase in Hebrew means he's coming to you as a personal, individual benefit. Not just for the nation of Israel, even though that's true. But specifically what he's talking about here, the Messiah, he's coming to individuals, whether it's Randy Lockley or you, your child, your spouse. Every individual, he's bringing to you the opportunity, personal benefit. Today we would call that, you could be born again. You could be at peace with God. You could be a child of God. He brings that. He brings personal, individual salvation for you. And again, what did the Jews want? They wanted to set up their kingdom on earth and they wanted the Romans to do what they wanted them to do. They wanted, the Jews had been slaves of Egypt and Babylon and Assyria and on and on and Alexander the Great and the Greeks and now the Romans. They said, what about us? It's our time. We want Messiah to overthrow the Jews and have them follow us. They wanted to be set free of foreign rulers. What what God is wanting them to understand is, I want your individual heart set free. He's coming. He's not Alexander the Great. He's God. 
He's the servant king, not the military king. He's poor himself, and he's afflicted, but he brings you the only possible way of salvation. If you read in Philippians, I want you to go back to Matthew 21 now, but if you read in Philippians, when he's talking about Jesus Christ in that great self-emptying passage, what's called the kenosis passage, it talks about Jesus humbled himself. No one made him do it. No one forced him to do it. It was He chose volitionally, willingly. He humbled himself and became obedient to the will of the Father, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, Philippians says. He was humble. Self, and the word in Greek means self-emptying. All right, now back in Matthew 21, we see that it's all about fulfilling prophecy. So look at the praise that they offer. Go back into Matthew 21 again. Look at verse 8. A very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees. These would be palm branches. Again, read all the Gospels. And they spread them on the road. And the multitudes who went before and those who followed, they cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They offer this great praise. I want you to look at verse 8 again. A very great multitude. There was some before him. There was some behind him. The picture is it's a mass of humanity. Remember, we mentioned it a moment ago, probably two, two and a half million people in and around Jerusalem for Passover. There's a lot of people and the pilgrims that are coming in. And so they're following Jesus. And it is a, a huge crowd. Thousands upon thousands. No telling how many. And they're screaming, notice, Hosanna, save us now, literal. Save us now. That's the cry of every individual who comes to Jesus Christ willingly saying, Lord, save me. Thief on the cross, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? But that's not the reason they're screaming Hosanna. They're screaming Hosanna, save us now from the Romans. Hosanna, if you're Messiah, now's our time. We believe you're the one set us free. Because in four days, what will these same people be screaming in three days? What will they be screaming? Crucify him. Crucify him as a common thief. We'll take Barabbas. We want Jesus gone. He's a rabble rouser. He's not who we thought he was. We want him gone. Notice the other thing they say. Hosanna to the son of David. The number one messianic title in scripture particularly in the mind of the Jews, was son of David. Son of David, that this would be the Messiah. When Jesus reigns in the eternal state, he will reign from the throne of David. So to call someone the son of David was to say, we believe you're God, we believe you're Messiah, but again, they wanted Messiah to do what they wanted. Then, in the middle of verse 9, the end of verse 9, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Exclamation point. Hosanna in the highest! Exclamation point. That's a direct quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. Part of the Hallel, what they would sing and chant at Passover, heading it when Passover week. Chanting and singing to the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they have the clothes and they wave the palm branches. Both of those are a sign 
of respect for this man. But then look at the response in verse 10. It gets perplexing. Here they are screaming, Son of David, blessed are you. Blessed is he. He come in the name of the Lord. Then verse 10. When Jesus had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? Because the great crowds, all the pilgrims that were coming in and following him, thousands upon thousands upon thousands are with him and chanting and waving the palm branches and, and making way for him. Like, who is this? Is it, a, is it a great king? Who is it? So the multitude said, this is Jesus. Please notice the next two words because it says it all. The prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. The same Jews that had just been screaming what? The pilgrims that are coming in that had just been screaming, Hosanna, son of David. Now say what? Oh, this is Jesus, that prophet from Nazareth. Not Messiah, not God himself, but just a great prophet. Just a great prophet. They just didn't get it. Even Jesus' own disciples still struggling. I want you to listen to John chapter 12. Now, this is John's account of this same event. I want you to listen closely. His disciples did not understand this at first, this triumphal entry, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that this had been written of him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. The Pharisees said to one another, you see that you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him, end quote. Here's what he's saying in John's account. His own disciples, Peter, James, John, the 11, they didn't get it. After it was all said and done, and when it says after he was glorified, it means after he had died, was buried. Remember, they thought, it's over with, I'm going to go back fishing. And he rose from the dead, was glorified. Then they remembered, oh yeah, Zechariah wrote this about him. And he said he was the fulfillment. And he kept telling us his kingdom was not. Afterwards, they remembered. And that the things that were done to him were the fulfillments of prophecy. And they remembered the crowd that followed him because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. And they thought he was going to do it again. Maybe for them, for someone they loved. These huge crowds. And even the Romans and the Pharisees said, look, the world's gone crazy following him. What are we going to do? Passion week. Passion Week, triumph in the middle of tragedy. I'm going to read you a quote, and then we're going to close together. Just by a pastor named Octavius Winslow. Quote, the religion of Christ is the religion of joy. Christ came to take away our sins, to roll off our curse, to unbind our chains, to open our prison house, to cancel our debt. In a word, to give us the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Is not this joy. Where can we find a joy so real, so deep, so pure, so lasting? 
There is every element of joy, deep, ecstatic, satisfying, sanctifying joy in the gospel of Christ. The believer in Jesus is essentially a happy man. The child of God is from necessity a joyful man. His sins are forgiven. His soul is justified. His person is adopted. His trials are blessings. His conflicts are victories. His death is immortality. His future is a heaven of inconceivable, unthought of, untold, and endless blessedness. With such a God, such a Savior, and such a hope, is he not, ought he not, to be a joyful man? End quote. And he's talking about us. Now here's the point. No matter what the tragedy is, and the tragedy is that they were rejecting Jesus the whole human race, by and large, with few exceptions. The exact same thing is where we are today. In the middle of a terrible tragedy in our world, this coronavirus pandemic, as a human race, by and large, we've rejected Jesus Christ as the answer to anything. And even those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, it hurts. And you hear about friends who've lost their job or who are sick, some who have died, it hurts. But here's the point. It's tragic. But in Jesus Christ, we have triumphed. We will triumph. And the key is, how can we communicate triumph or victory to others in the middle of this terrible tragedy? As individuals, as the church, Maybe God is saying to the United States of America, it's time you came back to me. I'm not saying God caused this. I'm saying God is always working good. And part of the good is, I bet in your own life, you're spending a whole lot more time seeking God's face, begging God's help, seeking answers in the confusion or the sickness, the hurt, as Christians, non-believers, even Christians, some are mad at or want to blame God. What God is saying is, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. I want you to turn to me. I want you to trust me. The United States of America is not going to make it without me. The world will not make it without me. Now, whether it's coronavirus this year or something else next year, or down the road, you need God. You need me, the Lord is saying to us. So for me as an individual Christian, your prayer life, my prayer life, is unbelievably important. There's nothing more powerful you can do than pray for your president, pray for world leaders, pray for those that are working on, on, on uh, vaccines and therapies and, and how to treat these. Pray for people who are ill, the ones especially that are facing death. But then also pray that as an individual, Lord, I want you to use me, maybe to encourage someone else. So many opportunities we're having to reach out to others, whether it's by Skype or email or text or phone or talking to your neighbor across the street. Literally this week, I'm laying in my front yard cleaning out my flower beds. 
and got people coming by. Just they stopped out on the street. And we're just talking from the street to the flower bed. And I'm asking them how they're doing. They're asking me how we're doing. I'm asking them. My next door neighbor got uh, taken to the hospital. So I was across the yard praying with them. How are you doing? You never know. Every moment, even in tragedy, is an opportunity. If you were in Jerusalem during Jesus' Passion Week, you never, at the beginning of the week, it looked really good. But Jesus is weeping because he knows the end of the week is coming, but he also knows that the next Sunday is coming and he's going to rise from the dead. We're going to celebrate that next Sunday. So as an individual, as the church, pray for your nation. Pray for yourself. Pray for us as the church. Pray for your leaders. Christ Church, just to be brutally frank, in the midst of all of this, people hurt. Our giving is half what it has been. Our total revenue is about half. So as leaders, we love our people and we love all that we deal with, all we care. But hard decisions may have to be made. We want to honor Christ. We want to do what the Lord wants. If nothing else, we know there's triumph and tragedy because Jesus Christ is God. He rode in victorious. At the end of the week, it looked like he was defeated. But now Christ is risen from the dead. We're going to celebrate that next week. Would you bow your heads with me wherever you are? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the person of Jesus Christ that he rode in triumphant, and he always has been. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And particularly today, he's the Prince of Peace because he brings peace to individual hearts. We thank you, Father. I thank you for Christ Church and the incredible support we've had as leaders and just continue to pray for our people. Lord, you get them through this. You'd use them to encourage others to share the gospel, to just lovingly care about someone and just be what you would have us to be as the church. We thank you, Father. We look forward to what you're going to do this week in the middle of tragedy. We want to watch you work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. I love you.